0: Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, chapter 9. Today we come to this passage that depicts for us, records for us, one of the great watershed moments in the history of the Christian church. We have before us the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to Paul. The Apostle of Jesus Christ. The ministry of the Apostle Paul produces 13 instructional books in the New Testament. Uh, You might say that these rich epistles of Paul have provided uh, the sound theology that we feast upon as the Church of Jesus Christ and have been feeding upon for these uh, 2,000 years now. Uh, The theology and the practice of the Apostle Paul's books have become very very crucial and foundational for our belief and our understanding. And here is the account of Jesus Christ meeting with Saul, turning him to Paul. And it's an amazing story. Now, it's not the paradigm for everybody's conversion. Most of us will not relate with this, uh, this the fantastic nature of this. But please see underneath it the radical change that happens from people who are enemies of God, which is everybody conceived in iniquity, and the radical change that must happen for them to be the friends of God through Christ. Um, The outward story is unique to Paul's situation. Everybody has a unique story. But the backdrop, the sovereignty of Christ, the providence of God, the power of God's effective call, it's all there for us. It's true in our own lives. And I want to especially say to those who have grown up in the church, young people, who have always heard the message of the gospel, and you believed. Praise God for that. But I would challenge you that it is important that the Christian faith be more than just something you assent to. You must meet Jesus. It's not just because your parents are Christians, or you got baptized here, or we, you met with the elders to take communion. That's all important, outward expressions of what you believe. It, it means something. You're not enemies to God. But maybe there's a lack of vibrance Meet Christ, and you'll meet him through his word as we see him today, how he meets with Paul. Thank God you didn't have to live the life Paul lived before, but ask God to give you the same kind of vibrance for Christ that Paul had. All of us should pray that prayer, but especially those who've grown up in the church and have longed to have that passion they read about in scripture. You can have that passion as you meet Christ afresh in his word. I read now Acts 9, Starting at verse 1, and I'll read to verse 22, one of the most amazing stories of conversion ever recorded. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief Priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, please give us aid in grasping the meaning of this incredible account of Saul meeting with Jesus. Please teach us by your spirit about the sovereignty of Christ and the far reaches of your grace in him. Cause each of us to consider our relationship with Christ, and I pray this in his name. Amen. The account in this text is probably the most famous conversion story Ever told, certainly, probably the most certainly the most important one. the foundation of the New Testament is the person of Jesus, without question, but it 's the apostles who were given by God the ability to give testimony to Christ, and Paul of all people was probably the most important of the apostles for that reason. Um, Jesus is the rock, but that foundation of the apostles and the prophets we find through. Paul's writings. So, his calling, his conversion, is so important to the history of the church and its expansion. I read in several commentaries the account of two scholars in England who wrote concerning Christianity, trying to disprove it. In fact, James Boyce goes at great lengths to explain how this happened in the life of these men. The men, Lord Littleton and Gilbert West, strong in their unbelief in the 18th century. They thought they had good reason to reject Christianity and they struck at two different pillars, Jesus' resurrection and Paul's conversion, having met the resurrected Christ. In a conversation, one of them said, Christianity stands upon a very unstable foundation. There are only two things that actually support it, the alleged resurrection of Jesus Christ and the alleged conversion of Saul of Tarsus. If we can disprove, disprove those stories, which should be rather easy to do, they said, Christianity will collapse like a house of cards. So Gilbert West agreed to research and write a book to disprove the resurrection of Christ. Littleton agreed to research and write a book to disprove the alleged appearance of Jesus to Paul on the road to Damascus. One said, you show why Jesus could not possibly have been raised from the dead, and I'll show that the apostle Paul could not have been converted, as the Bible says he was, by a voice from heaven on the road to Damascus. These two learned lawyer scholars set about to do their research as they lived their lives. And some years later, they came back together to report on how they were coming along in their progress. One is recorded to have said, I'm afraid I have a confession to make. I've been looking into the evidence for this story, and I have begun to think that maybe... There is something to it after all. The other said, the same thing has happened to me. But let's keep investigating these stories and see where we come out. In the end, Gilbert West wrote The Resurrection of Jesus Christ, arguing that it is a fact of history that cannot be denied. Lord Littleton published a book called The Conversion of St. Paul, which offers an outstanding defense and explanation of the certainty of Paul's meeting Jesus on that road as the reason for the change in his life, for his conversion. Nobody could have ministered as Paul ministered or have written as he wrote without there being a genuine meeting with Christ and a whole-scale conversion. And this is the truth of the matter, among other truths that are revealed. When a person meets Christ, whenever it was in your life, you can't be the same. Let's see Paul before he met Christ. Verse 1 and verse 2 of our text of Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is a euphemism, an early euphemism for those who were Christians, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul of Tarsus was ambitiously pursuing Christianity and Christians. We're introduced to Saul at the stoning of Stephen. You probably remember. He stood there while the people who were throwing the stones to murder Stephen put their cloaks somewhere where they could be watched, and Paul gladly watched them while they destroyed this man, killed him. And he was there approvingly. That's where we first meet this young Pharisee, Saul. Then we are told that he goes on a spree ravaging the church, hunting down Christians, trying to find them, to have them arrested or killed. He was a highly respected, relatively young Pharisee determined to snuff out the church. Notice his tactic for attacking the church in Damascus. He went to the high priest, it says in verse 1, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The synagogues were meeting places for teaching and worship for the Jews in the first century especially. They were set up outside of Jerusalem for people who could not get back regularly to the temple. There were little churches, you might say, and each had superintendents or head pastors or leaders of the synagogues. And they had a certain authority over these fellowships. Now, what happened after the resurrection of Jesus is many conversions happened. We've been reading about that. Many Jews came to Christ. It was a natural fulfillment, Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. And so these synagogues became often mixed with Jewish converts to Christianity and Jews, and there would be debates going on. We've seen already that that's where the apostles would go to express or to declare the gospel, to talk about Christ. And so Paul knew, Saul at this time, Saul knew that if he could go to those synagogues, that the Christians would show themselves. So if he could get a letter with authority from the high priest to the leader of the synagogue to let him be there, with a th- he could find out, he could research who the Christians were in the area. They would come to him. It's an evil tactic, but it's an effective one. And this is his idea of how to snuff out Christianity, especially in Damascus. So he heads off to Damascus, a five-day journey on foot, almost 150 miles. This is Saul's mindset. This is Saul's heart. If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. They weren't going to bring them back to Jerusalem for questioning fair trial and something else bringing them back to Jerusalem to be examples so that everyone would know that you would die if you were a Christian. It seemed that the stoning of Stephen, since it happened with relatively no repercussions from Rome, it emboldened this man Saul in his hate in his heart for Christ and the church. He hated the idea that Christianity could rise up and it could somehow do away with his livelihood. Judaism as a nation state, the nationalism connected with it, the power he enjoyed as a Pharisee. This would all come crumbling if Christianity took off. He was an enemy of God. Once again, all of us, all of us apart from Christ are enemies of God. You're not neutral. Nobody's ever neutral. We're conceived in iniquity. That's the result of the fall. We are only made friends with God by the application of Jesus' righteousness to us by faith. We're either his enemy or we his child. And Jesus is the difference. That's the point. That's the dividing place. And here is Saul, an enemy of God. Here we are, unless we're in Christ, enemies with God. Even if you were born and raised in a Christian home, you should ask yourself the question, where am I with God? Am I in Christ? Because if I'm not, you have to be honest. You're an enemy to God. All of us have this standing, and we see it in the person of Saul very vividly. But the sweetest-looking person could be an enemy of God if they're not in Christ. Later, several years later, Saul, having become Paul, wrote to the Ephesians in God's inspired word. Remember the process of inspiration that God uses. He utilizes the person and their personality In their experiences, all providentially ordered by him to express himself. And we see in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5, Saul who became Paul's expression. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, he writes to Christians, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul's story of meeting Jesus happens next, and this is where But God, being rich in mercy, reaches out to the enemy of God, Saul. Now, maybe you have had the experience where you read this passage. You've grown up in the church. I don't remember being all these things that Paul says we once all were. The test for you is not whether you were, but imagine for a moment, just try to imagine if you didn't know Christ, can't you see how you would be don't you, realize, don't you think in the quietness, even if you've not experienced or done some of the most heinous things, you know your own heart, and you know the depths of your thoughts, and you know if it were not for the grace of God, you would be the worst of all. Every one of us can relate with that, even if we haven't experienced in actuality. That's who we become if we're not in Christ, if it's not the grace of God working in our lives. Here we have Saul meeting Jesus, which forever changes him. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. So it's the end of a reasonably long journey on foot. Paul thought a strategic move would be to go north to stop the church from spreading that way. Now the irony of this we remember from the last story is that Philip had just preached to the Ethiopian who was heading south. Kind of leapfrog as Saul was going north, Philip was going south, and the Ethiopian, became a Christian and went south. And so Saul thought he had all sorts of power to snuff out the church as he went north, but the reality is God was spreading his church. Saul could not have stopped that. But he was pompous. He was arrogant. He marched toward Damascus, no doubt, with all sorts of of ideas of glory. Uh, People are scared of me. They're going to be worried when I come. They'll know who Saul is. And I'm going to enter Damascus with a certain aura about me. They're going to know what this means and Christians will run and this will suppress this this cancerous growth called Christianity. This will be because of my doing Saul feeling filled with himself. But this human glory would not be. Verse 3 Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I want you to notice something about this conversion. The voice didn't say, I want to present to you something and then give you an opportunity to respond. In this way, there is something modular about this. There's a mo- you could not choose Jesus. He hunted you down. He hunted all of us down. It could have been in the womb, but he hunted you down. It could have been when you were four years old, but he hunted you down. He hunts us down or we would not be saved. And so he comes to Saul It says, why are you persecuting me? What could Saul say? What's his response? I don't think I want to accept you today. He comes to to Saul in full grace, aggressive grace, which is really what grace is. It's one-sided. Grace is not that you chose him. It's that he chose you and joined you together with Christ, even though you were enemies, even though you hated him. He subdued you to himself. This is the picture we have in actual form when this voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Who's speaking to me? And here comes the answer. And please appreciate what Saul had to be thinking. He had invested his life in the notion that Jesus was a fraud, that he did not rise again. He knew full well what it meant if he did. If he did, then Christianity's got to be true. Nobody's defeated death and still alive. There have been rumor of people being raised from the dead, but they died again. Not Christ. He knew how important the doctrine of the resurrection was. Jesus could not be alive, or everything he was doing was a lie, and he was killing people for this. He was making his whole life and reputation based on this. And he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Do you wonder, does he know? But he's hoping not, and the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus was alive, and Paul was wrong all the time. And the sins that he committed were compounded in his mind and heart, no doubt, because the resurrected one was standing before him. He was meeting the raised Jesus, whom he was killing people concerning and notice very carefully what Jesus says, and it's encouraging to all of us. Jesus brings us to himself. We are in union with Christ by faith. Jesus speaks of the body of Christ being those who are redeemed to him. When someone in the body of Christ is persecuted for his namesake, he is persecuted. That's how close Christ is to us. So Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He knows what he's saying. The resurrected one is saying, the persecution of Christians, he had been persecuting Jesus directly. There's no pause for a response from Saul. There is Jesus saying, verse 6, rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. This man with all the answers, with all the academic accolade, with all the power politically, with all the popularity among those people who knew who he was, those who shuddered when they saw him, he couldn't say a word. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He's blinded now. He can't even see. So much for a glorious, triumphal entry into Damascus. He has to, according to the text, they had to lead him by the hand to bring him into Damascus. God humbles him and subdues him and brings him to the place he has to be to understand who Christ is. For three days, it says in verse 9, He was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. We know he prayed during this time because it says so in the text to follow. You could see him fasting now. He can't see. Everything is coming upon him now. His scholarship over the Old Testament, which was almost unparalleled, now is being flooded with the reality that it was about Jesus all along. And yes, that's joyous, but he has the weight of guilt for what he had been doing regarding it. For three days, the Lord allows him to feel that, to understand that, to start putting it together and trying to recognize that God has prepared for him something bigger than he could have ever imagined. But the weight of it has got to be heavy. He meets Jesus and he has changed now. When did you meet Christ? Because you should be different as a result. It may be inside and it's a fight to make it show, but you're in some conflict about the hypocrisy about your outward action compared to what you say you know is true. That could be the case. Maybe you just need some boldness. Maybe you're still trying to put together how your life looks different now that it's seen through the lens of Christ. I know people in our church who became Christians out of families that were whole-scale and they may have been religious on the outside, you know, go to church at church and you know, Christmas and Easter and kind of have a certain spirituality we talk about, but, but whatever you do, don't make it change your life. Like, don't make it reorder your priorities. And when you see it that way, when you now see through that lens, it changes everything. And now all of a sudden, they don't understand you. And you have trouble understanding them. When you meet Jesus, you don't see anything the same. We meet him every time we open up the word. The spirit of God works with the word of God to give us assurance that what it says is true, that Christ is real, that he is ours and we are his. When did you meet Jesus? We're meeting him now. We're hearing from his word. We'll partake of his sacraments. We're fellowshipping with other believers. These are times where we grow in the reality of the presence of Christ in our life so we know when we feel alone, we're not alone. Christ is with us. And immediately, Saul, who's yet to be named Paul yet, starts growing in his new relationship. Verse 10. And by the way, verse 10 introduces the greatest unsung hero of the Bible, I would say. Um, Maybe his name Ananias, because it's similar to the other Ananias, is a reason why you don't hear as much about him. But this guy's a hero in my mind. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. So he's a Christian there living in Damascus. It's a ways from Jerusalem, so he's figuring I'm out of harm's way. But word had gotten out about Saul. Everyone knew who Saul was. The Lord said to him, Ananias, in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. What, what is, what, Lord? What do you want? And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. He has seen a vision of a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Ananias has got to be putting two and two together. I'm Ananias. But that's Saul. I know who Saul was. I know who Saul is. Certainly, the Lord could not be asking me to go do that. This is a guy who kills people. Please don't let it be me that has to go talk to him. He's got to be thinking. And I don't think that's just uh, unfounded conjecture because look what he answers, verse 13. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. He could have, Ananias might know widows because, because of Saul. Ananias might have been personally impacted by the devastation and persecution and oppression of Saul. Verse 14, and here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is understandably hesitant to follow God's instruction. Are you ever hesitant to do what you know God's telling you to do? I know I am at times. But I know what he's calling me to do, especially when it comes to being a witness to his name. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. He's not asking us to go talk to Saul. He's giving you your family right around you, he's giving you your co workers, he's giving you your friends, he's giving you your neighbors. He's giving you your friends on your sports team or in your dance team or in your band or in your drama, whatever, you're meeting people. He's giving that to you. He's not asking you to go talk to Saul of Tarsus. God responds and says, Go. Go, Ananias. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the king's In the children of Israel. Now I want you to understand something about God's providence. God is not saying he now becomes my chosen instrument from this point forward. The providence of God oversaw even the wicked Saul before. Developing him into the person and instrument he would be. Now would be the point of demarcation. But he had always been a tool in the hand of God. Built up by his providence to be unleashed at this moment. And here is Ananias appointed by God to come and tell him, of God's calling upon him. Verse 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered his house. He knew he had no argument with God. He must do what God called him to do. And he heard what God said, that Saul would be called to great suffering for the name of God. But it was God's appointment. He was his instrument. And so Ananias departed and entered the house. Much of this book is about Christians being witnesses for Christ. I pray that one of the results of our study of Acts, which I said from the beginning, is descriptive of what God did in redemption history. It's not all prescribed exact actions we follow as models. We recognize that. The epistles give us more clarity about the things that should be the norms of the way the church functions. Acts describes a very unique period. But I hope what we gain from Acts is a boldness about proclaiming Christ wherever he has placed us by simply sharing with people how they can be right with God. Ananias entered the house, verse 17, and laying his hands on him, he says something profound. Don't miss this. He goes to Saul, the murderer, who he's never, to our knowledge, met face to face, and says, Brother Saul. Brother Saul had no chance to prove his brotherhood. Brother Saul had done nothing to earn his right in any family. Brother Saul had no familial right with Ananias on any level we can explain except one. He was a brother in Christ. And brothers and sisters in Christ are only united because of the righteousness of Jesus, not because something we earn. It's it's, it's unlike any other familial relationship we can imagine, any other association we can imagine. It's the only one that is solely bound in someone else, and that's why it's so tight. Because the someone else is perfect. The someone else is the righteous one. The someone else has paid for our sins. We all have that in common. And we are really brothers and sisters in God's grace in Christ. And grace is his favor shown to us who really deserve his wrath. So we could say brother or sister to one another in a way that the world will not understand. Because it's not a fraternity. It's not a biological family. It's not a sports team. It's family in Christ. And he goes to this man who was a murderer, but God said was my chosen vessel, to spread the gospel, and he lays his hand and says, Brother Saul, this isn't Brother Saul, fellow Israelite. This is Brother Saul, brother in Christ. The Lord Jesus, he says, who has appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He rose and was baptized. He's identified with Christians immediately. He is converted. I mean, he is convinced. He knows this. And he is the persecutor of Christians now is baptized into the body of Christ. Identified for all to see. Taking food, he was strengthened. This is a beautiful picture. It's a physical one, but it's used in Scripture in other places. Going from blindness to sight is descriptive of conversion or our coming to Christ in Maybe you've experienced this, but there was you grew up in a church and you heard the Bible open, but it didn't mean anything to you. Or people tried to tell you what the Bible said, it didn't make sense. Then, at some point, now it makes sense. Now you understand. Now you see with different eyes. That's the scales that God supernaturally takes away. You have scales as a dead person, and that's who you are apart from Christ. Dead in trespasses and sins, you cannot see beyond this temporal life. Not in any reality. We make up some reality to explain what might happen after death, but we're really dead to it. But then, the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, used to take the scales off our eyes, and now we can see. Now we can understand. We can see the world for something more than what we see on the surface level. It's not just temporary. It has reaches into eternity. There's a, a purpose for all of this that will go on. And now we see with new perspective, the scales come down, and there's a reality we have as Christians. Though not fulfilled in its completion yet, it's now open to us. And we see and the gospel, the way we're right with God becomes paramount. Because we know people have to see this and understand this and know this. Immediately, verse 18, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose, was baptized, took food, and he was strengthened. Here's another feature that I hope encourages you. I'm sure that many here have a burden for somebody that doesn't know Christ. It could be someone very close to you. It could be a child. It could be a spouse, could be your parents, some friend, some best friend that you've had. Maybe it's someone that you just think they're unreachable. There's no way they'll come to Christ. Of all the things we learn from the story, can you not see with me if God could bring salvation to Saul, the murderer of Christians, the enemy to Christ? If He could bring salvation to Saul. He could bring salvation to anybody. We see the life that is renewed now, just in brief, and we'll see it in fullness in the rest of the book of Acts. But if you look at the second part of verse 19, we see this new life in Christ starting to be exemplified in the life of Saul immediately. Um, there's no delay in his initial witness. Now, we know some years go by, three years go by, according to Galatians, which is probably the first book Saul, wrote, Saul becoming Paul wrote. Um. So three years before he heads off into missionary journeys and starts writing the epistles. But immediately, verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the son of God. Now notice two things. In verse 19, what does he do right away? He spends time with other Christians. He fellowships with other believers. He places himself with others who claim the name of Jesus. That's an essential part of our Christian growth. That's always and everywhere promoted by the apostles. Jesus himself exemplified it in his life on earth. And then the apostle, right away becoming a believer, is with disciples for discipleship, for encouragement, for strength, for courage. All the reasons we need to be in the body of Christ. Um, Very simply, you will not grow as a Christian if you are not with other Christians. You should go and share the gospel, but you must also spend committed time in the communion of the saints. And that's what we have exemplified from day one with a man who was once their murderer. Now he's their brother. And it says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Doesn't take long for Saul. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He goes to the synagogue that he was supposed to go and collect people to have killed. Instead he goes and says, he is the son of God. I changed my mind. God changed my mind. He is the son of God, and you can understand the, what people are thinking. Verse twenty-one: All who heard him were amazed, and they said, "This is not is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? This is how could, this isn't making sense. How this is the same Saul, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? If Saul could be an immediate witness, and I know he had." a quicker uptake than we do because of his background in the Old Testament. But we can be witnesses wherever we are on the knowledge spectrum. Some may feel, I just don't know if I can answer all the questions. You don't have to answer all the questions. You seem to tell them how how you became reconciled to God through Christ. You can tell anybody that wherever you are as a Christian. Verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength, And confounded the Jews. They were just completely confused. The people in general were seeing it and saying, how could this be the same Saul? Now the Jews, the officials, usually when it says the Jews, it's referring to their leadership body. This confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. Because why? Because now he was not just telling him he's the son of God. He was proving that Jesus was the Christ. And boy, would he be powerful. I mean, if he's plugging Jesus back into the Old Testament revelation, imagine, you couldn't get a word in with Paul Later in his ministry, imagine when he's just realizing this. He's just laying out how every book of the Old Testament points to Christ, to Christ, to Christ, and Jesus is the Christ. I mean, what are they going to say to this guy? See, this is the beauty of God's providence. By using Paul, himself a Pharisee, the Pharisees can't take him. And he comes at it with this, this a fierceness about the truth as he proclaims Jesus as the Christ. God's providence at work long before we recognized his hand upon Saul, but now it's unleashed. Earlier, I referred to the work of Lord Littleton as cited by Boyce in his commentary and John Stott as well. So the reason Littleton finally decided this had to be true, that Saul really did meet Jesus on that road, it was coupled with the fact that he recognized that no one doubted that there was an Apostle Paul who wrote these books. I mean, there are some desperate scholars that will try to pick away at that, but the textual criticism and the history of it's too strong. So his point was, well, if Paul really is, is a, was a person, he wrote these books, it can't be that he met Jesus and he was anti-supernatural in his thinking, Littleton was when he started. He said, well, there's, there's one of three possibilities that argue against him actually meeting Jesus, and these were the, the possibilities. First, Maybe he was simply an imposter, imposter. he was a charlatan, someone who's just trying to trick people into following him. Maybe he just was crazy, just a crazy person of such high intelligence that he couldn't put it together, he was losing his mind and he was an enthusiast, as the way Littleton wrote it in the Old English, which wasn't a positive term. He was basically a lunatic who was preaching these things or saying this happened to him that he met Jesus like this. Maybe he could have been deceived by others who wanted to subdue him from his persecution. They tricked him into thinking that they, he met Jesus. Well, was he an imposter? Did Saul lie about meeting Jesus? The problem with that is what motive would Saul, the popular and up-and-coming Pharisee who was, had everything you can want, power and riches, what would he gain from doing this about-face and making up a story like this? He didn't travel alone and no one ever argued against what happened. His conversion put him squarely in the crosshairs of Judaism and Rome. He went from being the one who brought suffering to suffering, great loss, because he identified with Christ. It makes no sense that he would be faking his meeting with Jesus. Was he crazy? When you read the 13 epistles of Paul, do you read a crazy person? Now, he admits in some of those epistles, people think we're crazy because we trust in Jesus. We believe in the resurrection. But he says so in in such cogent, rational, logical terms, to the point where the book of Romans is still used as a descriptor of a a wonderful, logical defense. This is not a crazy man who's saying that he met Jesus. He, he, He doesn't speak in those terms normally. Was he deceived by others? Can you imagine this? How do they set up the bright light on that road? How do they set up the voice? from the? I mean, was it the Wizard of Oz kind of thing behind the curtain, one of those things? I mean, it's silly that they would be able to come up with such a ruse, such a hoax. What would make him blind for three days to have his sight restored? What kind of technology would it take to pull off something of this magnitude? Clearly, he wasn't deceived by others. That word would have gotten out. Remember what we did to that? Impossible. Littleton summarizes in his book, I shall then take it for granted that he was not deceived by the fraud of others, and that what he said of himself cannot be imputed to the power of that deceit, no more than to willful lies or because he was crazy. It follows that he really experienced this conversion, and the cause of this conversion was because of the power of God. And therefore, the Christian religion is a divine revelation. It must be accounted for by the power of God. God reveals himself to us in his Son. His word is the revelation of his Son. It's dynamic because the Spirit continually attends it every time it's preached in every era. In 2018, as I preach this passage, the Spirit is at work, and you, the people of God, are built up by it. Those who are not yet the people of God are convicted by it. Or, if you reject it, you're judged by it. if you've met Christ, you will not be the same. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us great, great love and appreciation for what you have given us in your word. I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would enliven us to study and read it more and then also give us opportunity and boldness to, with love and compassion and honesty, share with those that we love the message of your gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would also give us encouragement about those folks who we long to see come to Christ, that we think to ourselves there's no way they'll ever come to Jesus. But uh, By this story, remind us of the sovereignty of Christ over even his enemies, that you have said to your son, sit at my right hand while I make the nations a footstool for you, meaning that you will subdue enemies unto yourself through your son's work through the Spirit's ministry. Lord, give us great encouragement from this. Give us boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.